Claudia Gray's newest Star Wars novel, The Fallen Star, takes us on a tragic journey as the starlight beacon crashes down. Join us as we discuss the highs and lows of this entry into the High Republic series. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this discussion where we are talking about The Fallen Star by Claudia Gray at long last. At long last. Oh, my gosh. Okay, this has been on my to-do list for almost four months, <laughs> maybe four complete months, and I actually finished this book yesterday. Caitlin has finished it a long time ago. And for me, I was just in a reading slump and I didn't get to it. It really says nothing about how much I care about the High Republic because I really do, but I it just didn't get to it. And I really forced myself and I finished it yesterday and I'm very happy and I'm very, very thrilled to discuss this today with you, Caitlin. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. If you guys follow our High Republic series, you know, usually I'm the last one to finish our books. So, you know, we're just we're just switching it up this time. We're just Any book review. Places. Really? <laughs> we're just trading places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't believe, though, that we're really at the end of phase one of the High Republic. This has been a really fun year-long journey, I think, where we just got so many books to discuss. And we really barely scratched the surface on this show reading only the adult and the um, young adult books. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll cover the next phase um, as well, obviously. Like, we really like The High Republic and are impressed by this initiative. So, uh, yeah, I'm really happy that we're almost at the end of this phase one part, but it also makes me sad to be basically saying goodbye to a lot of characters, which we'll get into. We said goodbye to so many characters in more ways than one, so. <laughs> yeah, this is a spoiler-filled discussion, so now's your chance to peace out if you haven't read The Fallen Star by Claudia Gray. Uh, we will be discussing spoilers in our discussion. Yeah, it seems so funny to say that since we're covering this, like, quite a, <laughs> a bit after. <laughs> it was really, yeah. like, usually usually we're pretty, like, we're not, with our book reviews, we're not, you know, the first ones out of the gate with our reviews. No. Uh, but even then, we're usually like, spoilers, but now I feel like everyone knows the spoilers, but yeah, spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> I wasn't coming. spoiled at all for this book, which That's is funny, because I remember you, you read it on time, and you were like, oh, I read a couple spoilers on accident scrolling Twitter, and that didn't happen to me at all. I don't know how it didn't happen to me, but... Yeah, I was surprised. Yeah, I don't know how you lucked out of that one. I will say we were on track to finish this to get this episode earlier than we did. But honestly, like the Star Cruiser was right in the middle yeah. of when we were yeah. originally planning on finishing it. So that kind of sent our schedule into a bit of a tailspin, which was obviously a very welcome one. But yeah. And I feel like we gained a lot of new listeners from our Star Cruiser review. So if you are just joining us for your first Sky Talkers book discussion, welcome. And we're so happy that you're here. And again, thank you to everyone else for your patience as we get out this The Fallen Star discussion. We're very excited. So why don't we jump in, Caitlin? Yes, let's. So if this is your first uh, book discussion on Sky Talkers, we usually split it up into three parts. And part one is our first impressions. Part two is our deeper themes and discussion about characters. And then part three is where we go through and discuss some of our favorite quotes from the book. 
And without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Okay, welcome to part one, where we're talking all about our first impressions of The Fallen Star. And this book, I feel like... This book had a lot of mixed reviews coming out from it when it first came out. I remember when uh, like a lot of the reviewers and a lot of other podcasters got like the early copies and were kind of, you know, talking around some of the things that were happening in the book. And then we started getting some full reviews out after the official release date. And it feels like this book got honestly a lot of mixed reviews. And I know you and I both kind of we're wary about taking that into our reading of The Fallen mm-hmm. Star because Claudia mm-hmm. Gray is probably our our favorite Star Wars author. So it's so it was kind of surprising in a way because to, to have like mixed reviews coming from her book just because she usually knocks it out of the park. And so I think we were kind of surprised and wondering, all right, how how are we going to feel about this book <laughs> now that, you know, it's not it's not like the next lost stars. Yeah. 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 It's curious. I am always pretty wary about that when we start something, especially with books, um, because I think that you can often take those opinions into your own reading and it can cloud your judgment about something. In this case, I have had such distance from (laughs) that initial set of reviews from reading this that I probably agree with a lot of those reviews. But that said, I think my expectations were pretty low based off of that. And I ended up being like, yeah, this book is pretty plot heavy. Um, With these adult uh, High Republic novels, it really does seem like there's a pattern that I do hope they break in this next phase. That is the adult books deal with a major disaster happening and the Nile ruining the Republic and the Jedi and tragedy striking, dealing with the force. And it's usually like a big event and a huge disaster. I mean, the literal first book had the great disaster. And then, you know, the Republic Fair was also a big disaster. And then, of course, with the Starlight Beacon, I think from the moment we saw the Starlight Beacon and heard about it, we knew that it was going to come crashing down. I can't say that I thought that this would happen this fast within phase one. I thought that this would be a phase two or phase three event. That was obviously before I found out what the next phase of the High Republic was, which is them pulling a prequel and going back 150 years in the past, which I'm really intrigued by. I think it's a really bold, daring move. But I think that for for me with, with this book, I actually ended up liking it more than I thought I would because of those reviews. And I found myself um, struggling to get through it in the first, <laughs> in the first like 50% of the book. And then the latter 50% of the book really hooked me and flew by. I think for Claudia, I think her strength as an author lies in character relationships. And I think perhaps something that was missing in this book, and maybe this is an argument that you can make for the entirety of the High Republic, is that since there are so many characters that often strains. Um, It's pretty hard to dive into every single character relationship when you have like 40 different characters. This is an ensemble book. And I think that it's also really interesting because to me, it was pretty clear who Claudia's favorite characters were. And that was her characters that she debuted in her own novels. Nan, to me, was a really well-rounded character in this book. And she 
really <laughs> had a lot of internal monologue that surprised me and felt like sometimes the deepest parts of the book. I think you could say that for about Stellan too, um, but I think it was particularly notable since that was uh, Claudia's own character that she created. And okay, so generally for me, I will say that this is probably my least favorite High Republic adult book, but I still enjoyed it. I thought it was a good read and I do recommend it. Yeah, I think overall, I think the young adult novels have been my favorite among the High Republic books. Me too. And probably The Rising Storm was my favorite out of the adult novels. But I think that, I think you, what you were saying, Charlotte, about like the ensemble of it all, like being difficult to really have these big character moments, because unlike other kind of big series, uh, books and like worlds and stuff like that, you're not following one character or like one set of like five characters through 12 books or something, right? Like you said, we've got dozens of people who function as main characters in a couple different stories and a couple different venues and like in young adult and adult novels and in the comics as well. Like there is so much going on in the High Republic. And I kind of think that a book like The Fallen Star was inevitable at a certain point because I think that The Fallen Star is also probably the first example of a book in the higher public that it really felt like you needed to have read at least the other adult novels in order yeah. to kind of follow along. And I think that makes sense too because like, I don't know, I think, I think like, I know they say that you can kind of jump into the higher public at any point and to a certain extent, I, I, I think that's true. But I think when you're kind of looking at the, the sets of like the adult novels and the, the middle grade novels and the young adult novels, it, I think they probably do encourage you to at least jump into those at like one, two, three of <laughs> uh, The Light of the Jedi, then The Rising Storm, and then uh, The Fallen Star. But it's, it's a little bit more gray area, I think, um, for some of those other books. Whereas with The Fallen Star, because it is so plot heavy, it really does feel like it's the first one that you need to have read the other High Republic novels in a couple of them at least in order to be able to track what's going on and I don't think that's a negative per, per se because I do think that that's inevitable like we're coming to I guess like we're moving into the middle into the next phase right like this is not the beginning of the story um it would like it was always going to come to this point right and it just so happens that it is Claudia's book here of the fallen star our final kind of major disaster. Um, but yeah, like Charlotte said, I, I think I enjoyed this book a lot more than I thought I would given the mixed reviews. I think once I just kind of accepted that this was a plot heavy book and kind of relinquished my need uh, for like those deeper character moments that we've gotten in other High Republic books and also in other Claudia books, I feel like I kind of swung in to like leaned into the book a little bit better. And I think that the back half of this book, like once once the the Starlight Beacon is actually crashing, the pacing of all of that, I think, is really well done um, and is is like action heavy. And it keep it's a page turner, I think, once you get to kind of the end when when things, you know, quite literally are crashing down. Um, that I think was a really exciting part of the book. But like, I don't know, I think kind of the build up to it. I was like, it. this book is the Titanic sinking. Right. I think that's. Yeah that's kind of what I kept thinking while I was reading it. Like we have all of this prelude up to the ship 
being dismantled basically from the inside out. And similar to when you watch the film Titanic, you know that's coming. And I think a lot of us knew that this was coming for the Starlight Beacon. So it's just, I think there's also that anticipation there as a reader of, all right, let's get to it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it kind of felt like like the Titanic sinking in a lot of ways. It's funny because I completely agree about the Titanic comparison. I'm sure we aren't the first at all to make that comparison. I think there's even a little bit of Chernobyl in here as well. Mm -hmm. But I think something that the Titanic did super well in isolation, and I'm talking about the movie really, is show the opulence of the ship and make you kind of fall in love with the different levels of the ship. And I'm not sure I felt the same way about the Starlight Beacon. I actually really didn't have a very solid sense of place. The only time I really felt a solid sense of place is at the back half of the book when I could fully picture the hangars, the different levels that Elzar was going down. Those really stick out to me. And maybe this is because I'm not an avid comic reader, but this felt like something that would be important as a scene setter in the beginning of this book for me to understand why I should really care about how sad it is that this you know, opulent symbol is crashing down. It's not that I, obviously I did care and I understand why, but I think the Titanic really, the movie Titanic, James Cameron did a really good job of showing all different sides of it when I don't really, I didn't get that sense with this. And I wanted to mention also that I found the writing to be a little choppy. Like it felt like there was, we were jumping from vignette to vignette and so many times I just wanted to linger in some of those points. And I felt a little disappointed by that. And I know that's because we're we're at a 342-ish page book. And that's a long book, big book. But I still feel like there were points where I just really just wanted to stay on them just for a little bit longer before we moved on to the next person. But like you, like you, Caitlin, like once I settled in and just realized that that's how it is, um, I had a better time. Yeah, it's almost like there should have been the little map in the front, you know, a cross section of the Starlight Please. Beacon. It would have been, I think it would have been helpful. Um, I was a big proponent of this in Resistance for the Colossus. Um, people, if they listen to that, those reviews, no. Uh, but I really do think that like a cross-section of the Starlight Beacon would have been really helpful. I can't remember what it was called, but the um, the medical, isn't it called the medical tower uh, where Belle is with Indira yeah. for, and, and Briaga for a good part of the book? They're in the medical tower. and But the tower is not on the upper half of the Starlight Beacon, which is the, the half that um, <laughs> gets gets separated like that's the and half yet that we don't see and any of the other half which it's, yeah part of me was so confused by that okay. where I was like oh they're breaking off but I wonder who's there and then it was like oh no one that we know well I was okay. like Bella's there I was like oh no yeah. Bella's there and then and then I was like no he's not and I'm like but isn't he in the tower <laughs> I feel like we're being pretty harsh and I just want to be clear that like the book is good and I enjoyed it it's just to me it's some of these things were like mm, Think, I'm confused. <laughs> I think honestly, I think the book was okay. Like, yeah, I think yeah. if I were to give it like a grade rating, I'd probably say like a solid B, maybe B plus, B minus. Yeah, I think yeah. 
Um, I just think that there were a lot of things, this being the conclusion of the adult series and in a lot of ways, like marketed as part of the conclusion of phase one. Obviously, we have um, like some other like Daniel Jose Older's book that came out as well. So this isn't like the end all. It's not the period on phase one. You know what I mean? But it's kind of marketed that way. And I think that a lot of things just came like a lot of loose ends didn't get tied the way I wanted them to. And I don't know how to describe it because it's not even that they needed to get tied because this is just phase one of, of two, at least, you know what I mean? So like, I, I know that it's not going to be wrapped up in a bow at this point, but there are just some kind of things that I think have been lingering throughout the high Republic that have been critiques of mine. I know that kind of all, got pushed to the surface for, uh, in a way for me within the fallen star. So I think that kind of colored a little bit of my experience of it. Um, as I'm thinking about the high Republic as a whole, and it's all just kind of being, like I said, emphasized within the fallen star for me, because this is the end of our first set of three adult novels. Yeah, I think that's true. And I am, it's interesting just the way that the High Republic is structured. Sometimes when I think about the initiative of this project, I get pretty overwhelmed with the amount of labels and companies and teams that are involved in this one initiative. And it's hard because we're siloing the adult books, these three books, right? Like if you open up The Fallen Star and go to, which I am right now, and go to the timeline the ones that are listed are Light of the Jedi, The Rising Storm, Tempest Runner, and The Fallen Star. And that's because these are the ones from Del Rey. But of course, we know that Disney Books and Marvel Comics and a lot of other labels um, come out with different pieces of the story. And I, this is just like it. It's it's like so much to me yeah. <laughs> to even cap off. And I we'll never get over how intense of a project this must be like, Oh my gosh. And we're still just getting started with it. And I am with you in that. I think that it should have been a better send off for the end of this phase one. And I'm with you that I feel like something is missing, but I think the entire concept like overwhelms me that like, I'm yeah. willing to forgive some parts of it because I'm like, wow, this is a huge <laughs> initiative. And I don't even know how they pulled this off. If they're even pulling it off, I guess, is the argument. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's just, it's a lot. I I find myself being like, I'm missing a lot of pieces. <laughs> right? And, and I feel like I'm consuming a lot of stuff. I'm not caught up in the comics, I guess. You listened to The Tempest Runner. I did. And I did not. We have the book. And I know you really liked it and everything. And it's just interesting because that's listed in this because it was a Delray production. So say you only did those four that I just read. I wonder if you would be in the same position. Um, I guess you did that. So you still feel a little <laughs> like you're missing a piece. <laughs> but, uh, I wonder who, who, who could I talk to that's had that experience? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I have, well, I mean, I've read more than that. Um, right. You've read a lot of it. I feel yeah. like it's not, I don't think we're, um, on the side of, I'm not even, okay, here's the thing. I'm not even confused about which order to read things in, like the way that I feel a lot of people are. That's like the most asked question that we get on our social media is yeah. how to read the High Republic. And f for me, I'm not even that confused. 
I just am like, you go to release order. It's th- it's there. There you go. Yeah. And you can pick and choose. You probably want to read all of the adult books if you're an adult and yeah. leave it at that. And then you can pick and choose all the other ones. And yet I still find myself being like, especially in this book, being like, I'm missing a really big piece. Yeah. And like you said earlier, I know I'm like rehashing something that you already said, but I feel like that is expected in this end piece of this phase. However, I felt like this was a huge chunk. Like we're talking like half of the pie I feel like I was missing, not just a slice, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I think that that this, like similar to the way that I think this book could have laid out the – the set piece of the Starlight Beacon a little bit more. Like it didn't really feel like there was enough of a swan song for the Starlight Beacon. Um, I think that this book probably also could have done better at the one to two like expository sentences about who a person was and kind of why they were here. Like I, I remember thinking this about Chansey in the book that I don't think it was super well done who she was or why she mattered in the long run. And that if I hadn't read out of the shadows, I might be really confused about Chansey and how she's kind of like a big deal. Like it's huge it's, deal. <laughs> the best scientist in the galaxy. Like casually. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't really think that I feel like that should have been explained in this book, especially since she dies. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that probably could have been done better in the book. And so, but at the same time, I think that's, that's a, it's a really hard ask for a book like this because like you said, it's already at 340 pages and there's very little character development, I think in this book. So where you put that in, I don't, I don't know, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, out of one hand, I'm like, well, maybe they, we should have, you know, slimmed the, the cast down, like our main cast that was in here. Like, does it just become a book about like Stella and does it just become a book about Belle Um, or like just the two of them and kind of leave out a lot of the other people. But, and maybe, maybe it's because we are more familiar with these people that we treat them like main characters and want more information about all of them in every single installment that they're in. When the reality is, is that that just can't happen every time because then you have a 600 page book across three adult novels and like that's <laughs> who who's gonna read that you know like that's a lot to to publish and to sell I think yeah and so like this book couldn't have come at any other like you couldn't have put this as the second book or the first book like this had to have been the third book in the adult series and I think it faced a lot of challenges in that and I think there's room for improvement and I think I come away from it being like the starlight beacon crashed people died like a lot of our main characters died and that's kind of like my big takeaway from it um yeah and that it just wasn't my favorite out of what we've gotten so far from the high republic but i still love claudia gray as an author Mm -hmm. i think that this book needed avar (laughs) i think this book (laughs) desperately needed avar this and yeah every adult book needs avar that's the (laughs) truth okay (laughs) This I is, yeah. love Elzar. Okay. I love that character. I think he is super interesting. Anytime it was one of those vignettes that was focused on him, I was like, yes, because to me, I find him like the most interesting. He's the Anakin character. He's the one that has like a storm inside of him. I love that. I love that for any character. <laughs> but his big anchor anchor is Avar. And he references Avar, their past together. And 
Um, I, I want more. And I feel like something that we speculated from the very beginning of the High Republic is this whole Guinevere, um, Lancelot situation that could possibly um, arise between this trio. And I think this book actually did a good job of accentuating that, yes, they were a trio, are a trio, and even should be considered continuously a trio with this concept of them as like a constellation, these three stars, the pole star. I I loved that. I really thought that that was a really good touch. But what would have made that even better was that if Avar was actually in this for more than like three pages at the very end. Yeah. And because when she was there, I was like, oh, this is good. Wow. Intimacy. (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) Like, this is what we need. And maybe that's what I'm craving. I don't know. But it's just funny to me about how Avar is just continuously absent in these adult novels when she's being talked about constantly about how amazing she is. And I think that there was some hint here about how something I found really cool about this book was that Stellan and Avar were like sort of head to head at some concepts. Yeah. There was so much tension and I was like, whoa, I feel like I'm missing something. And I was, I definitely was, I will own up to that. But even if I wasn't missing something, I still found it intriguing and interesting. And I wanted more of that. I wanted more follow-up of that. I wanted to see what Avar actually thought about Stellan. And I think this was a really good opportunity to feed that in and to make, therefore, Stellan's death even more tragic, which it was tragic. I think that Claudia did a great job with that. But I I just feel like there was a piece missing because she was physically missing. <laughs> Yeah, this has been, I think, probably my biggest critique all through the adult novels of The High Republic is, you know, where where in the galaxy is Avar Chris? Um, she's front and center on Light of the Jedi, and that's the book she's in the most, and she's not even in it that much in in Light of the Jedi. And I just, I, I really don't understand it. I still don't understand it. And I think that treating Elzar Avar... Elzar, Avar, and Stellan, like a main trio for this set of novels, is really would have been really great, really smart. And I feel like I know Elzar and Stellan pretty well as characters through, really through Light of the Jedi and the Rising Storm, and through the Fallen Star too. But of course, the other ones are when we're really introduced to them and their struggles and like what they go through to be who they are in the Fallen Star. Um, but Avar, I know nothing about and. Like you, I really liked this this conversation of them as the constellation of each other's pole stars and and all of that. I thought it was really beautiful. But like that, forgive me if I am wrong here, but that like constellation metaphor is not really used in the other books, right? Like in Light of the Jedi and Rising Storm. Mm-hmm. I am hesitant to confirm that because I feel like it could have come up in the Rising Storm, but don't remember. I know that they like talk about each other as like the trio and like the group of them, but this like. I don't know, this like internal dialogue about like that, like the being the pole star and being together like this concept isn't like Stellan, like their constellation, but like Avar and Elzara closer together like that, that, you know, like an isosceles triangle kind of thing. (laughs) 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 Um, And I, I don't think that came up in the rising storm. I could be wrong about that. I don't think it did, but I think I really liked that. And like, like you, I was like, am I missing something between Stellan and Avar? Like there's a lot of tension here. And I thought their, like the one conversation they had in this book was so great. And I was like, this is honestly, this is way more interesting to me than Avar and 
Elzar and their whole drama, which it's 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 just Elzar dreaming about Avar's blonde hair on his pillow. Like if I have to hear Elzar wax poetic about <laughs> Avar's beautiful shining blonde hair in one more book. <laughs> Without, well, without actually seeing it. it that, that's the thing. It's like, yes, thank you for giving. This is good. I'm happy about this. But I'd like the, the a scene to actually happen. You it's know? like every, everything we know about them together as a group are all memories. Like we – have they been in it all in a room together for more than like a page, if that? I really don't think they have. And so like everything we know about them is is memories that they're all having of each other. And like I think there's a time and a place for that. But – I just I I guess that's not the story I was expecting from this group, how they were presented and introduced even prior to the High Republic debuting and especially in Light of the Jedi and Avar's character. Yeah, I just I know she has a bigger role in the comics. I'm even further behind on the comics than Charlotte is. So I just I I really don't understand why she did not become a main character in these adult novels and especially in the fallen star. Cause she's, she's there. She's doing something with the top half of the starlight beacon that we never go to. <laughs> she's there, but we just don't so close and yet so far. <laughs> yeah. So true. <laughs> okay. So we've been talking really generally about the high Republic, this entire book series. So what has been our favorites? What characters do we gravitate to? And Caitlin, why don't you go first? I think my favorite book has probably been Out of the Shadows. And then my favorite characters have been Wreath, Nan, and Belle. And I know that not all of them are in that book, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, re- I really loved all the characters in Out of the Shadows too. But um, Wreath and Nan and Belle, I think, have kind of been my favorites to see explored across a couple of different books in the High Republic and Out of the Shadows was just such a fun read. I thought I thought it was such a it was such a great book. Justina Ireland did a fantastic job with that book. So I really loved it. Yeah, Out of the Shadows has been my favorite too. I realized that I think that Wave Two was my favorite of phase one. Yeah. And I liked Out of the Shadows and I liked The Rising Storm. I think that both of those were really well written, really well done. And I just, I, uh, what can I say? I like a darker middle chapter. <laughs> For me, I also love Breathe, Nan, and Belle. I think I'm so nervous about Belle. We'll dive into that in the next season. Next season. Oh my gosh. Next, <laughs> next uh, section. But I feel like The Rising Storm, what really got me was Elzar in that book. And he wasn't really that much in um, Light of the Jedi. And I think that Elzar was like my anchor of why I enjoyed The Fallen Star. Um, and because I just really liked his character. I just said this. So I think that he is has a storm inside of him. I love the ocean of it all. I loved it when it was yeah. right in the beginning of The Rising Storm. That like opening with him diving into the ocean. It was so Elsa. It was so good. <laughs> and I I really enjoyed it. And I think that he has... A lot of mysteries within him, I guess. Yeah, those are my favorites. And I think Wave 2 just really knocked it out of the park for me, which is interesting because I'm not sure if I felt that way when we were reviewing them on the podcast, but sort of in retrospect, that's how I feel. Yeah, I think Wave 2 really, like The Rising Storm was probably my favorite out of the three adults and then out of the shadows too. And I just, yeah, I thought both those books were really well done. I thought they laid a lot of groundwork for... um, kind of all these converging themes 
I thought they did a really good job of balancing like the complexities of like dealing with this era as a whole, kind of what we've been talking about with all of the different characters and stuff like that. I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, our younger group of characters like Reith, Nan, and Belle, they've really they've really stolen my heart. And we can't me forget too. we can't forget Ember, our little charhound dog too. Oh gosh. <laughs> so worried. Every single <laughs> book, my anxiety goes through the roof every time that that charhound is left by herself. <laughs> Just, I like, know. Can't handle it. Um, when Ember was like curled up in a ball in this book, it was like she doesn't like loud noises. She uh, must be so disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> she must be so distraught. It's so sad. Um, but yeah, I've really loved seeing characters like Wreath and Val in particular, like really kind of talk about what the force is and working through these like really difficult things that are happening to them in this period and how they relate it back to the force and their roles as Jedi and um, kind of seeing them trying to take what they learned and apply it. It's been really fun to watch them through these books do things, <laughs> just do things uh, like Belle. I think Belle like really stepped up to the plate in the fallen star and did a lot of like, as I would put it, like grown up things and uh, was really successful in a lot of ways. And I don't know, I was just like really proud of him as a character. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I am worried about him too. I'm very worried about him. But That's the kind of character he is though, is the kind that you're like proud of and you want to see succeed. Oh, right. He's yeah. Just, he's so good. He's just so good. He is. He is. One of the things that you touched on that I want to underscore is that how characters kind of understand the force and understand the balance of the force and darkness and light, I think has been an overall highlight of the High Republic for me and probably the reason why I keep coming back to it. I think that in every book, there's a nugget that makes me consider things about good and evil, about... I think that each book says something about your relationship with the force and therefore your relationship with like light and life and love. And I think that it does a really good job of that. Um, I think something that I enjoyed about this book specifically was it felt like Stellan's whole thing about how he always was more attuned to the council than the force. That was something that was really accentuated in the wave two novels and was really, really shown, I felt like, um, in both of those. And it it was nice that it came back here and it was sort of this realization that he had to come come to. It felt like that was a full character journey for me that I saw. Um, and I like that it all really comes back to the relationship with the Force, which I think that if we wanted to talk about the trio of Avar, Elzar, and Stellan, I think that you, we could debate probably for a long time about who has the best relationship with the force. I don't know if we could have that much to contribute about Avar as we've previously (laughs) said, (laughs) but I think like Stellan versus Elzar, I think that there's several different cases throughout the books about their own relationships with the force and like who has a better handle on it. And I like that. I think that those are interesting points and I'm kind of surprised again like how I said about how sometimes I'm just really overwhelmed by the how daunting this entire project would be as a creator Um, I'm pretty overwhelmed by how much knowledge I have of the ensemble cast and characters that we do have and how far they've come even if I do find it to be sometimes confusing like when it comes down to it I am like wow Belle has been through a lot Elzar has been through a lot 
like we can we can name a lot of things like nan has weirdly been through a lot too even though we haven't really known her that long like we can we trace a lot of that you know what i mean and it's yeah. pretty cool to see that and affy too and it's like oh yeah that happened wow that was a really good story and i'm really thankful for that i guess it's cool yeah, it's like I, I always come into these books thinking that I have forgotten everything that's happened before. And then as I'm reading, I'm thinking, oh, oh, yeah, no, I do remember that. Oh, yeah, that that com- that's coming back to me, you know? Yeah, me too. I'll, it's I'll it's back funny. To me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think um, just to kind of talk broadly speaking about the higher public, like you, the force, the discussions of the force have been a huge um plus for me in my book, lol, in my book, um, takeaway for me from the High Republic has been its discussions on the Force. And uh, it's just been really fun to see the Jedi Order in this time period and how they're all, it feels like the Jedi of this time period are so much more open to a lot of these nuances. A lot of our characters talking about Um, how they experience the force, how they decide what path to take, some more than others, obviously, but it feels like it feels more open than the Jedi Order that we see in the second trilogy, which I think is, you know, part like by design. But I really enjoyed seeing that. And like even having something like the Wayseekers uh, in the High Republic has been a really fun concept to explore. One of the things that I've loved about the High Republic has been its discussion of hyperspace and like the infrastructure of the galaxy, I think, has been so interesting with the Santecas. Um, I've just been really fascinated by that whole story, and I hope that they continue to explore it. I think I kind of think we will in our next wave of it going back in time 150 years and kind of talking about you know, exploration in the galaxy and and how technology like this even was initially developed, I think is such a cool concept because, you know, you come into a universe like Star Wars and these things are already set, already in place, and you just kind of accept it that this is how people get around. It's the norm. But it's been cool in the higher public to see discussions of, you know, it hasn't always been like this. And here's what we think we know about hyperspace. And here's how here's, you know, we know we know more of what we don't know about hyperspace than what we do know. And I think that's really cool. Um, I was just rewatching the episode of Rebels where the Purgles were first introduced. And the Purgles, if you don't know, are like giant space whales, basically that travel through hyperspace. They can go through hyperspace. And the Rebels crew in um, the show Rebels discover this. They kind of think that they're myth, that the Purgles are myth, and that they can't travel. Or not that they think they're myth, that them traveling through hyperspace is myth. But then they see it in action. It's like, whoa. And of course, this becomes a, a much bigger plot point by the end of the series. But uh, they kind of talk about, they reference it in the higher public at one point, And then they also reference Jedi being able to travel through hyperspace or use the force or something like that. And I don't know. I just think all of that is really exciting and really cool. And it's been, it's been a really fun kind of driving force within the higher public is the discussion of exploration and hyperspace. Yeah. And with the fact that next phase is going 150 years in the past, I have to assume that it's going to be mostly focused on the Santecas and yeah. everything that had to do with hyperspace prospecting, which basically kicked off Light of the Jedi. Maybe the most intriguing thing to me about that book, Light of the Jedi, was uh, Mari Santeca. Um, 
man, that was so good. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so Mars, I, uh, yeah, same. And I think that there's a lot there that can be explored. So I, I'm really hopeful that that is like a major thing. Um, I kind of assume it will be. And I think that something that you touched on, which is the hyperspace, the traveling, the things that we take for granted within Star Wars, I think that is only going to be accentuated in phase two. Excited about that. Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, But were you expecting that announcement? No, not at all. And I think it's so bold. (laughs) And I'm, I'm impressed by how bold it is. And it actually makes a lot of sense. Like, of course, they're making a trilogy of trilogies, basically. Yeah. And of trilogy of trilogies of trilogies. <laughs> and in those trilogies, of course, they're going to go back in time because it worked so well for Star Wars, even though it's confusing. They're like, you know what? The High, uh, High Republic timeline isn't that confusing. You can just start <laughs> it whenever. <laughs> We're <laughs> like, gonna... it's so bold of them to do this as if our entire franchise is not... That's not the foundation That's what I mean. I just, of our franchise. I, I think it's funny how Star Wars, like this is sort of anecdotally, maybe not fully related to the High Republic, but I think it's funny how Star Wars like doesn't give a single shiz about <laughs> how anyone like can possibly understand the timeline unless you spend like maybe 10 minutes on Wikipedia and understand the proximity to things and like the time periods. I don't know how I've committed to memory like this single timeline. And I know other Star Wars fans feel this way that like suddenly we were just like sprung into this world knowing the ABY time period situation (laughs) and like the fact that like Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith are two and a half to three years apart. And like that only grew when the Clone Wars was like, oh, you know, 10 years later after uh, the Phantom Menace is attacking the clones, like, how did we know that? Or like, how did we know the time periods between everything? It's, they're burned in my brain. But when we meet a casual fan or a family member who's just diving into Star Wars, they get so confused. And I think that it's funny because the High Republic is like, yeah, that's just how Star Wars is. And (laughs) I respect that. I just respect it because it's just like part of the Star Wars brand now is just being like, yeah, we're just releasing shows now you don't know when it's going to be yeah you're going to have to explain to your aunt that the mandalorian (laughs) takes place after return of the jedi in between the force awakens and they don't know what that means but you do (laughs) so there you go the high republic is just like godspeed reader (laughs) yeah it's like it's before the phantom menace just get over it that's all you need to know it's before the phantom menace um yeah, one of our listeners and Patreon patrons, Derek, he just shared on our Patreon Discord this incredible spreadsheet, this like massive canon spreadsheet of every single piece of Star Wars content. Like I'm talking comics, I'm talking TV show episodes, like individual episodes, the movies, the books literally all of it um, in canonical order. But in it, he has also put in the release date of when that thing was released. Like it's it's listed in canonical order, but then it has the release date also in, in the spreadsheet as a column. And it is wild to be scrolling. Like you jump back and forth you know, nearly every other, every other entry between a couple different decades. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, it's an incredible spreadsheet, number one, but then to like really look at the breadth of everything that has come out in Star Wars and when it has come out is such a crazy ride. 
Yeah, I just it's just funny to me how this franchise just does not work linear, linearly and you just have to accept it. Everyone yeah. has to accept it and yeah. you have to be along for the ride. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so great. I think I've written out like the very bare bones release timeline for my parents. I don't know, half a dozen times at this point. And it just, you know, it, it never sticks. <laughs> it, it'll never stick. It'll it'll absolutely never stick. My dad was like, you should make a timeline and put like all the movie release orders and stuff on your website. And I was like, no, <laughs> like, yeah. you're talking about like elementary, like kindergarten <laughs> level. Your dad Star is Wars like Santa. one through nine. And our listener, Derek, is like every single thing. <laughs> that That's what's so funny about this <laughs> yeah. is the levels in which people are confused. <laughs> you should send your dad that spreadsheet and be like, this yeah. is. This is what's helpful, not a he would, he, episode he would be, one came out in 1999. <laughs> his mind would be blown. Everyone's <laughs> mind was blown, so his mind would yeah. be even more blown. <laughs> it's incredible. I love that. Anyway, we should probably move on to talking about deeper themes and characters in The Fallen Star. So are you ready? Yes. Let's move into part two. Okay. So welcome to part two, where we're discussing the deeper themes and characters of The Fallen Star. So first thing I wanted to start off with was the fact that the title is called The Fallen Star. And I think that that refers to the Starlight Beacon. Well, actually, Caitlin, do you think it refers to anything besides the Starlight Beacon? Um, I would say it probably also refers to Stellan. Yeah, me too. Uh, Yeah. In a way, I would say that the Starlight Beacon and Stellan are like sort of intrinsically linked based off the fact that he is the marshal of the Starlight Beacon and like through his hubris is what sort of brought down the Starlight and it was like his own running it and also the Jedi and the Republic's own confidence in everything that brought it down. I think all of those are relative. And I think that the beacon falling really works for me as a metaphor for how Lena sows the Chancellor's, her own vision for the Republic and the great works. The ideas were too great to stand, I guess, or hubris got in the way and it continues to get in the way. I think that this is a continuous problem with the Jedi, which is something that I find it hard to wrestle with when I read The High Republic is knowing that the fall of the Jedi comes in Revenge of the Sith, really. But how many other times did the Jedi fall or how many other times did the Jedi fail and like continue to learn the same lesson over and over again? I think this is a different kind of lesson than what we saw in Revenge of the Sith. I'm not necessarily saying that, but it's similar because I think that with a leader like Stellan, we were referencing the tension between Avar and Stellan over the holograms when they were talking and how there was this sort of odd battle between them about ownership and uh, marshaldom, I guess, of running <laughs> the Starlight Beacon and who could do it better. And I think that that's a problem, right? Like that's not what the Jedi should do. And yet they're put into these positions where they have opening ceremonies and they extol their great works, like literally call it the great works, you know, and things like that are signs of hubris and pride. And that's something that is continuously discussed in this book. So I wanted to kind of dive into discussing like the symbolism of the Starlight Beacon. And I wanted to know if you felt like if there was, um, a sense of like artifice to the whole thing of the Starlight Beacon or if like if I'm not 
if I'm really not on to something or if you had a whole different concept of like the Starlight Beacon crashing than I did. My favorite thing that the Starlight Beacon gave us as a ship, as a station, is our labeler droid. Um, <laughs> I knew you would love that droid. <laughs> <laughs> I highlighted and I annotated. I said, oh my God, a droid that labels things. <laughs> a label-making droid. <laughs> and now he just annoys the crap out of Stella and I think is so funny. <laughs> It was so great. The fact that that was a gift from Elsa, like, it was chef's kiss. That was amazing. (laughs) Wow, he and I would be best friends. And Stellan is just over him. But then he's the one that brings Stellan's lightsaber back. Anyway, it made me sad. But to actually answer your question, I think that the kind of diving in about Stellan and Avar and their whole um, like they're they're hubris in their roles. Like Avar is mad that Stellan took over as Marshall, but Stellan is right that she she just kind of left on this wild goose chase mm-hmm. um, for the Eye of the Nile, which of course, unbeknownst to her, is not really the Eye of the Nile. And mm-hmm. it's like you can't you can't just abandon your post like that. And I think, that, like I said, that is something that I wish we could have like spun out more and like what exactly it means to Avar and Stellan to be the marshal of the Starlight Beacon. And I think we see so much of that pride in each of them, particularly in Avar in the light of the Jedi from when she's kind of introduced as the marshal of the Starlight Beacon. But I think for Stellan, we really see it like that he is kind of intrinsically tied to the Starlight Beacon in this book, like you said, Charlotte, and like the the cracks forming on the Starlight Beacon and also in himself of like how he understands himself and his relationship to the force. And he references in this book too, like kind of being unsure of, of who he is and how he is presented to the galaxy and like this facade of who he's supposed to be as this Jedi on the council, now Marshal of the Starlight Beacon and, um, everything that happened in the rising storm, like that, that image of him pulling Chancellor So out of the rubble and how that became like the poster child for the cause, for the great works, for the Republic, for everything. And now he's at the center of that. And you just kind of have to imagine all of that pressure on him. And now he is overseeing the, the, the most important, one of the most important things that the Republic has created in the fallen star. And, ultimately it is destroyed from within and we can really make that a you know a metaphor about you know your inside your emotional state your mental state kind of um chipping away inside of you until it finally forces its way out and i think we kind of see that with stellan in this book and how he's trying to keep it all together um we saw that in the rising storm too but he's trying to keep it all together and it's just it's it all comes apart around him and ultimately he he goes down with the ship. Yeah. Another piece that I wanted to touch on is the fact that the starlight splits in two. And this is an obvious Titanic reference, but when things split in two in Star Wars, I can't help but think about the balance of the force. And I think so much of this book was discussing how the Jedi on the starlight beacon felt so severed from their connection to the force. And then of course that severing ends with the actual ship being severed itself and it doesn't end with that it's part of it and I I don't know I think that there's something to be said about how 
the Jedi were at their absolute peak. Like this is the era that we're in right now, right? It's called the High Republic because this is the shining beacon of how things were, how we're in the highlight era, the shining, I don't know, everything about it is supposed to be when everyone is at their best, when the politics are at their best and when um, when the Jedi are at their best. And yet their pride has reached like astronomical heights. And when the Nile then unleash a, a device, the leveler, which isn't named in this book, we got to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but it was the leveler, right? I guess. Yes. I think, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It's, it's tough. Okay. Regardless when the leveler, if it is the leveler is released in the, the station itself and creates like husk forms of so many amazing Jedi, then and completely cuts them off from it the- completely cuts them off from everything. Mm-hmm. So it it fully severs any sort of balance that they had, any sort of greatness that they had. And it forces the Jedi to kind of look inwardly versus looking out to the force. So it puts everyone on a level playing field. Oh my God. It does. <laughs> Hence the leveler term. Um, yeah. So I think that that was really interesting. And like, I just had to mention the fact that like splitting it in half clearly was a metaphor for the fact that so many things are being severed within the Starlight Beacon itself. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is something we talked about in Light of the Jedi of, you know, it's the Camelot era of the Jedi, but it's actually just the beginning of a pretty substantial downfall for them with the Nile. And, you know, they are working so closely with the Republic. And I'm glad that we get to see a lot of the Jedi having that conversation of, is this what we actually should be doing? And now they have this, this shining jewel, the Starlight Beacon, that is this partnership between the Republic and the Jedi. And so what does it mean to have it come crashing down so soon after after the, the the Republic Fair in the Rising Storm, that that also was this huge tragedy. And now to watch this, like, I mean, it's it's intense and it's 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 a metaphor, <laughs> I think, in a lot of ways. <laughs> and I I'll be interested to see what the Jedi look like when we go into the next phase of the High Republic because. A passage that I reference a lot through these discussions is one from Light of the Jedi of the Jedi mm-hmm. Council. It's like a two-page section where they talk about the Jedi going through stages and cycles throughout the generations of being hundreds of Jedi to being just two Jedi in the Jedi Order and and everything in between. And I think that it'll be interesting to have kind of these two big entries into our history of the Jedi to kind of then begin to compare and contrast all of them because I feel like often in the High Republic, we're comparing it to the Jedi that we see in the prequel trilogy for obvious reasons. So I'm excited to hopefully have another kind of entering into this, who are the Jedi? And I think this is a conversation that is consistently being unpacked. I know we've kind of strayed away from the discussion of like what the Starlight Beacon is and what it means, but um, I think it's it's interesting that it is representative of this partnership in a lot of ways between the Republic and the Jedi, but it is ultimately on the Jedi's shoulders if it succeeds or fails and that they are ultimately if you want to say responsible through Stellan for it falling and crashing and like that, that huge loss um, and what that will mean in the future for how people view the Republic and the Jedi, especially now that this is the third kind of huge blow to them. Yeah. 
let's talk body count. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's go. <laughs> the transition. There was no good transition for that. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about, okay. So the thing, the prevailing concept about this book that was like the mood of when this book was coming out was that it's going to hurt. There's going to be a lot of deaths. Have a glass of wine, some cheese and crackers, put on some sad music and get ready. And yeah, there was a lot of deaths in this this book, but none of them, oh, not, okay, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. <laughs> there were a lot of insane deaths. And like I said, nothing was spoiled for me. So I'm really shook by that. So let's go down the the list. Okay. So Regald, Orla, that was sad. I, that was really sad. That one hurt the most, I think, yeah, for me. Did. Yeah, um, Stellan, that one was, I think, like I said in the beginning of the show, I think Claudia actually did a really good job depicting the slow downfall of this death um, because I think that Stellan could have easily died by the leveler when it first struck him, but instead it was a, a tragic sacrifice, which I appreciated. Um, then Buriaga, I, 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 I just... I just the when Bell and Buriaga had the whole like we're gonna have a nice little like when we meet up again, uh-huh. we're gonna have we're gonna meet like we owe each other. I was like, this is the worst because they had just spent like the like fifteen pages before they were both like, you we can't split up. Haven't you seen any of the horror hollows? Like you can't we can't split up. That's how we all die. Guess what happened. <laughs> <sighs> Well, guess what? <laughs> and then, okay, then the Chansey death was like so much to me where I was my, I, I gasped. Okay. That, that was another good piece of Claudia Gray writing for me where I was like, oh my gosh, I know it's Chansey, but I don't believe it because of the way that it was written from Elzar's oh, perspective. Yeah. That it wasn't until like five to 10 pages later that you were like, yes, confirmed that was who it was. Ugh, that one hurt. And it's like it's interesting because we like I like villains, I like good guys, I like them all. Um, Chansey to me, I think, is a character that had a lot of interesting internal monologue in this book, so that I wasn't ever really a hundred percent sure which side Chansey and Nan would assume by the end of this. Yeah. And because of that, I found that really intriguing and it made me want to see them live because I thought that they were being, they were building to be really good double crossing characters. And so that's why it hurts when Chansey dies, because even she's, she thinks about uh, reconciling with her daughter and that daughter we do know well from other books. So it was a lot, you know, what do you think about that? Chansey's death was the most surprising. I was actually spoiled on Stellan's death. That was the one I was oh. spoiled on. So I was always kind of prepared for it to be his end, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. kind of at every turn of the page. But I do think that his his ultimate demise was really well done. But Chansey's was the most surprising. And yeah, it was, well, actually, Variaga's was actually the most surprising. Yeah. Variaga's hurt the most. Chansey's was the most surprising. Um, I just think that for me it kind of it's the biggest question mark too and kind of like why her because I think that the in out of the shadows the relationship between her and Sylvester is so interesting and the surprise that Sylvester has the plot twist of it being her mother who's working with the Nile on this horrible horrible weapon was so good and 
And then like her, uh, Chansey and Nan being paired up was such an interesting, quite the duo, the two of them together. And I don't know. I just think that all of that was a really fascinating dynamic that I would have, I would have loved to have seen Sylvester and Chansey meet again and see what conversation they would have had. And I think Chansey is such a cool character. Like, like you said, she's the smartest engineer in the galaxy and we lost her, which I think is kind of a bummer, honestly, but it was the most surprising. Um, yeah, Buryaga and Orla definitely hurt the most. Regald, I was actually really sad about. Regald, Regald, Regald? Regald? I said Regald. Regald? All right. He he actually, he grew on me as mm-hmm. the book went on, and then suddenly he was gone. <laughs> yeah. I was very sad. Um, and Orla, Orla hurt a lot, just because her and Stellan had such great conversations. They were some of the best parts so of the good. book, I thought. And so and her- Elzar, too. Like, they all had yeah. really good convos. Yeah, She's I'm like, so good. that's my trio, Avar who. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's actually kind of true. I mean, I, <laughs> and then Indira, Indira was shocking. And we're going to talk about Belle some more too, because I think, honestly, I think Belle and Stellan had the best character moments in this book, even, even thinking about Elzar. I think that Elzar was going through a lot of the same thing he was going through in the other books, whereas I think that Stellan and Belle had the most, more, had newer things that they were thinking about, I thought, Bell in particular. But Bell's relationship to Indira and his insistence, his hope and his like stubborn belief that she's gonna be okay is is so endearing. Like Bell is just such an endearing character. I cannot stress that enough. <laughs> like it's so to see him so upset about Indira and what is happening to her, like I feel I feel more for Indira's predicament that she's in right now because of Belle, because of how attached I am to Belle as a character, more so than Indira herself, if that makes sense. Yeah, it was like, oh my gosh, not Belle losing another master and being alone once again. It was awful. Also, I just want to comment that you saying endearing, endearing, and Indira was really funny. That is funny, actually. I didn't even pick up on that when I was saying it, but yeah, that is funny. And our our fake out with Leox, that was good. That I was that was about to be the worst one for me. I <laughs> again, that was like a whoa! Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I am so attached to the vessel crew. It is unreal, unreal. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're my faves. It's it's rough, but I love the geode she situation. Got so much like page time in this book. It was great the gags the magnetic shield the the fact that geode wasn't gonna fit in an escape pod was making me sweat bullets i was like this is i we can't leave him behind i was like this we can't do this we can't do i can't deal with this i feel like claudia took all of the geode just like the way that people talked about geode after he debuted and in went into the dark right is when he debuted yeah and she just took it and ran with it a hundred percent in this book and it was so funny like him flirting with people people being jealous like geo's a playboy geo doesn't fit in an escape <laughs> pod geo just appears in places geo 
like put on his magnetic field and killed what's his face <laughs> like with a when rico- coley died and then her line bullet <laughs> yeah her line being like coley all the last thing coley saw was geode standing above him like a tombstone i was like damn <laughs> that was good <laughs> i would be like well i'm done for the day yes. <laughs> from writing like, right. That's, I, it doesn't get any better than that i'm right right like, <laughs> my space my space stone my hot space stone man i've <laughs> he's killed a man <laughs> he's a tombstone <laughs> it was so good yeah so i couldn't risk the fact that geode was going to be left behind but then to leave, or it was then then it was leox and i was like i and then i yeah. was like affy oh my god like don't because then affy was like i'm just worried about the ship and i'm like babes leave the ship like I get it I'm here for you I mourn for you like I know what this means for you but like you all have to go yeah yeah I think Claudia was pretty aware of the fact that we are not sympathetic towards like leaving the ships like where we're like it's you can go like it's time to go because there felt like there was a lot of lines that were like it might seem crazy to some but there were (laughs) and I was like yeah it it does seem crazy to some to like yeah, at all. <laughs> um, even though I did understand her play, especially because of Affie's like earning of that ship and yeah. her insecurities about being the captain of that ship, it felt really symbolic and good. Um, but it, yeah, yeah, really attached to the vessel crew. It's a lot, man. Yeah. I gotta say, <laughs> I gotta yeah. say, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a lot. Um, yeah, I was listening to our friend Shannon and Alex on their podcast, and they were speculating that Stellan could actually still be alive. And I wanted to know what you thought. Um, Stellan being alive, I mean, just like the fact that at the end of this book, they were like, we haven't seen a body of Buryaga. Like, he's still out there. He's yeah. still, he's probably alive. I don't know if I believe it because of the slow tragedy that we saw with Loden. Um, and that was what they referenced when they talked about Buryaga and his body being there. However, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. It's Star Wars. People come back all the time. And if Stellan came back, oh, actually, hmm, I think this, I hadn't given this much thought, but now I'm thinking <laughs> through it. And it it's interesting because I think that it might cause even more tension between the trio if he did come back. The trio. The trio. And <laughs> <laughs> see, I think I think that Varyaga is still alive, but I don't think that Stellan is. Like I think that I think that Bell or maybe it's like a whole we're gonna talk about Bell, but he like has that <laughs> we all oh, we we keep saying that we're gonna talk about Bell. We're let's gonna just talk, talk about, about Bell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, let's talk about Bell. Like I said, yeah. Bell has some of the better character moments I thought in this book. Um his reflections on Loden's death, his fear for Indira, being able to put all of that aside and brainstorm like new plans in how they were going to escape, getting people out of the medical tower. That is not a tower. And then ultimately, like, his faith at Buryaga is still alive. Like I said before, it's very endearing. And him at the end of the book having this whole feeling that Buryaga was still alive, I thought it was like, I believed him. Like, I'm with him. I believe Belle when he says that, he, one, he's going to find Buryaga and that Buryaga is still alive. Like, I believe that. Okay, so I think one thing that you and I are kind of always tracking or talking about in the High Republic series is who's going to turn to the dark side. And I think we've said that it could be every single character <laughs> in the High Republic series. True, true. Every time true. a book comes out, we're like, so could this person fall to the dark side? And we're like, who's going to yes. be part of the Lost 20? Yeah, exactly. Who's, who's, number, who's number three? Who's number two? Number one? 
Are they, do they already exist? Anyway, um, do I think it could be Belle? Yes, I do. I don't actually want it to be Belle, though, because I find him so endearing. But perhaps yeah. that would just make it all the more tragic. But mm-hmm. he did have this conversation or this this internal dialogue with Baryaga, like after a conversation with Baryaga about um, Loden and everything that happened. And I, I just I really liked uh, the conversation that they had. So I wanted to read it, if that's okay. It's on page 38. And they're talking about Loden. And Bell says, I thought he was dead, but he wasn't. Master Loden was alive in Nile captivity, suffering so terribly. Bell's voice caught. He swallowed hard. And it wasn't like I didn't sense him, but I told myself it was grief. They told me it was just grief or a sense of him through the new communication, new communion with the force. Instead, it was him calling for help that never came. I could have saved him, but I didn't. Briaga stopped him there with a low growl. There was no way to know what Bell might or might not have been able to do or even what the order as a whole could have done to rescue him. That's the whole point, Bell said. If I'd failed in an attempt to help, okay, that would be hard, but I could look at it. Look at what I've done wrong. I could learn from it. And maybe Master Lonan would have known that at least we tried. Instead, there's nothing. I did nothing. And then he talks about Briaga for a second. And then he says, yes, Bell told himself, everything Briaga said is true. It's hard and it's awful and it's how things happen. The past is no longer in motion. There's nothing for you to do but accept it. Only now did Bell realize that to him, acceptance had meant something too close to surrender. That wasn't it at all. Acceptance was strength. It was being able to carry the weight of what had been and what had not. Through all the many days, months, years, and decades to follow, Bell would bear this burden as long as he cherished the memory of Loden Greatstorm. That meant he would bear it always. And I just, I really love this conversation and to see Bell's anger at what happened, like especially in the first part of what he read when he said, I, I told myself it was a grief. They told me it was just grief, talking about the Jedi Order. And it wasn't like they were all wrong and he could have done something. And this is at the very beginning of the book. So then to see everything play out with Indira and then Briaga at the end, it all makes sense for where we, how we see Belle talking about these losses later on in the book. Yeah, I think that's actually so true. And I think that maybe something that would be interesting to happen was Briaga being alive and then another situation of the Jedi wronging Belle or calling him crazy or something after they go searching for him and say that he's holding on or something like that. But really it's like he was the one savior of his friend or something like that. And then what would push him to the dark side there? Um, I mean, that occurrence would, but what would happen next and who would he take out the revenge on um, if it was against the Jedi in some way that had wronged him? Um, I think that all of this is part of the reason why the Starlight Beacon fell the way it did. Um, If we wanted to kind of go back to what we're talking about, about pride and hubris, I think all of that is all compounded here where the Jedi just didn't believe that any of that was possible. And even by Belle saying, in a lot of ways, I would say that Belle is a character that is like relatable um, and is one of those like, uh, what's the, what's the term? I'm kind of forgetting the term, but like, I guess the protagonist that you're supposed to relate to and you're supposed to yeah. attach yourself to. Um, he's kind of like the eyes of the audience in a lot of ways sometimes, you know, and mm. I think that if we understand how he was wronged, then we can understand why he would turn to the dark side in a similar way that Anakin did. I think we see why Anakin went to the dark side because 
it's it's complicated, right? We were still debating it. It's been like almost 20 years and here we are. Um, so I think that there could potentially be a similar situation there for Belle. Um, I think there are several characters like you mentioned that could go to the dark side, but yeah, that quote is a convincing tell, I would say, about the future. And that's what it's sort of sad that we're going 150 years in the past because I have so many questions after this book that I'd like to explore immediately, but I guess I'll have to wait and that's okay. I can wait a whole year. <laughs> it's okay. Um, or longer, I guess. But I don't, I think that I would prefer if we were to choose between Stellan coming back and Buryaga coming back, I think I would prefer. Buryaga to come back because I think Stellan has he had a good swan song and I feel like this book was did a good job of describing his death so bold mm -hmm. that's my bold hot take because your bold hot take I mean honestly yeah. I would probably agree yeah I really want Buryaga back yeah that's I just at this point I really can't decide about who I think would fall like I kind of thought it would be Stellan for a lot of this like I think he was kind of the one I put in front Elzar seems like an easy pick to turn to the dark side in a lot of ways. And I still think that could happen. And I still think that would be a really good story. But what if Elzar and Avar both turn to the dark side together? That would be pretty hot. Not going to lie. It would be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it would be good. But I don't know. It's would it be like easy because he's already like flirting with the dark side so much? I mean, is that easy or it's just that... That's the story, that's the story. reading. Yeah, we're <laughs> yeah. like, it's easy, but we're like, that's the story they've been telling also. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I kind of like, what I what I wish would happen, right, is I wish that they would really push this relationship between Elzar and Avar to the nth degree and make it high stakes drama. Basically, I would like for them to make it another like Raylo kind of situation. Um, <laughs> Same. And, <laughs> that's what I'm pushing you know, towards, obviously. That's why I said they should turn to the dark side together. <laughs> right? Well, no, but like I want like I want I want them to come together and then I want one of them to fall to the dark side. Like, can you imagine if like Avar, Elzar and Stellan had really been like this main trio like fully the main characters for the adult series like overall and Avar and Elzar get together Elzar and Stellan are still like the best of friends right and then Stellan dies and Elzar falls to the dark side through Stellan's death and through chasing after the Nile whatever it is and then Avar has lost Stellan and now loses like her true love and Elzar to the dark side I don't know I think that would have been really dramatic and cool but I mean, that still could happen. It still could I mean, we're happen. We're already tracking with a lot of those things. Yeah. It's just there would need to be a lot more. There would be need to be a focused book on Avar, I think, about something like that. Like really, really focused on Avar and Elzar and their relationship and what the stakes are. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it and I also kind of wonder if there's just like there just becomes a galaxy where the Jedi Order no longer exists but it's not like it is in the prequel trilogy where there's like a manhunt for jedi but the jedi order just doesn't exist anymore and so people like like bell are just out there almost like ahsoka after she leaves the jedi order like just out there trying to do what they think is right way seeking yeah but not like fully detached from any kind of jedi mm -hmm. order like i know the way seekers are more or less but they also aren't more or less yeah, it's interesting because I think that even the fact that Stellan was so critical of the concept of the Wayseekers is something that I wish that they tugged on a little bit more. I guess like it was 
explored in the fact that Stellan didn't have a personal relationship with the force and really just had a personal relationship with doing what the council said or like aligning with the council. And I think from the prequels, we know that that is just not the way to go at all. Like we have that as an audience who's familiar with other aspects of Star Wars, we know that is just does not end well by being so dogmatic as Palpatine would say. That's interesting though. I never thought about that, about like the potential for even the, the Jedi reaching their pinnacle, then dissolving, and then somehow get they get back together in the prequel time period. Yeah. Or if they're all yeah. cut off from each other, too. Right. The leveler, I don't know, does something else more, grander, bigger. But Chansey's gone, too. So I don't know. I don't know who does that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Okay. Let's talk about Markeon because we have talked a lot about Markeon on this podcast and like barely with this book, even though he's not really in it that much. But in the past, we've had discussions about how Markion, since he's a villain and he has done bad things and has a storied past that we're still uncovering, that there's potential for his path to change. However, in this book, he is the most villainy villain possible. He is so evil and boy, was it entertaining. What did you think? Yeah, I think that he is truly, truly a villain uh, now. I would be surprised to see him on a path of redemption at this point, and especially mm. given everything that happened in this story. I think, like for any Star Wars, almost every Star Wars character, I think redemption is always on the table in like very loose terms, calling something like redemption, redemption, you know what I mean? Um I think it's kind of always on the table, right? But I don't particularly foresee that for Markian anymore. I wouldn't speculate that yeah. for him. At this Just because it's on the table for every character doesn't mean that like yeah. it's going to be the story path that this story is going to take. But maybe we're being fooled. Who knows? But man, Markian, I know, I know. Maybe <laughs> Markian in this is so evil and is like really planning for his. It's funny that we that Lena so used the words great works to discuss her own contributions to the Republic when I think that Markion might even use the same words to discuss his own disruption of her own great great works yeah and uh how proud he is of that I love the gaze electric when Charles Soule wrote the gaze electric and the the floating suspended rooms that was like such a clear image that I carried into this book specifically. And anytime that there is a chilling image of the gaze electric, like, I don't know, I just love that setting and it is so good. Yeah. I think the gaze electric always, like I always just envision the gaze electric and anything that Markeon and the Nile are doing as, as you know, shrouded in like a cold fog. (laughs) I think because of how yeah. they talk about each other as, you know, like the storms and the the eye and everything like that, the clouds and the strikes, it's all very mysterious and stormy. And I think that's a lot of how I envision the gaze electric. But um, yeah, him getting rid of like only having droids on board the gaze electric now and kind of what is it? he's like refusing to work with like sentient beings now like he's lost trust in them it's it's all very maniacal I think and Mm -hmm. him Mm -hmm. coming to watch the starlight beacon crash was really sinister and not even telling that telling other Niall that it was him so that just he could revel in this pleasure himself it was 
It was very sinister. It was kind of chilling, honestly, when you're reading it and he just like shows up to watch it fall. And um, like these what he would consider these like futile rescue attempts and things like that. It was it was pretty chilling. Um, I will say his mole inside the Republic, his relationship with the senator was pretty hot. Yeah, it's pretty hot. The distant relation to Santa in the Afrocomics. Yeah. It's pretty cool. But yeah, I'm with you. It is pretty hot. And I don't know. She's going to die soon. (laughs) She's out of there. She's gone. She's gone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was surprised um, that it was her. And this is a part of the book that I felt like I was missing something. I was like, oh, did I know that there was a mole? Have we talked about this before? Or is this like a new a new inclusion in the fallen star. I can't, I can't really figure it out, but I loved like seeing her on the ship and like where their rooms were discussion of their rooms and like their dinner plans. I don't know. It just, it was like, she knew that he was using her, but they like, she got what she wanted to in a way, but she was also surprised at the extent to what he was doing. But anyway, I just thought it was, you know, it was, it was hot. (laughs) Markian is a hot villain, but he is a villain. Yeah, and I it's it's a little nice, like it's a little different than what we're used yeah. to in Star yeah, Wars to have a villain like this that is the main central villain, and it's refra- it's like I like it. Okay, it's good. I like Markian. Every time he's on the page, I'm intrigued. If we're gonna make him like a an irredeemable character like Palpatine, like give me Markian over Palpatine. Like Markian yeah. is hot. Palpatine is not. <laughs> <laughs> also, Palpatine could potentially be redeemable. I'm just gonna put that out there. Again, anyway, always on the table. Every, it's always on the but... table. It's always on the table. Okay, let's move on from Markion to talk about Nan. So Nan is a character I said at the top of the show that I feel like Claudia favors, and I felt like she has wavered so much with her loyalties. She was so savage at the Maxine station in Into the Dark. I, the more I think about the book, the more I just really liked the sense of place with that book. Like I think Claudia did a good job, and I think it's a little underrated about the the concept of this like plant evil plant station that she built. Like that was cool. That's cool. Right? That's cool. Yeah, and Nan basically betraying Wreath and Affy. I really liked that this was something that was carried on into another book. And it felt like even if I hadn't read that book before, I could feel like they had a history. Like maybe I'm a little biased with that, but I felt like Claudia really did a good job of describing that and bringing that really to the center (laughs) in a lot of ways um, about these two women tripping each other and like basically almost killing each other each time. Like the tension was there for me. And every time we see Nan, I feel like she has a different hair color. I love that. I think that she's so cool. And I was really happy that she survived actually, because I think that she, when she's like jetting off to the Nile, I was like, oh no, freaking Markion has killed every sentient being. (laughs) And now Nan's coming back and like, she has already severed ties with the Nile before what is Markion going to say to her? And like, is that going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Like I'm, I'm intrigued and I, it'll be interesting to see what happens next with her character. I can't imagine that they would like kill her off screen, but wow, that would be really a crazy way to start the next, uh, at least phase three, I guess, uh, when we're back into this time period or like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want that. Okay. Obviously, but Markion is, as we just said, a formidable villain that like, yeah, when she jets off that way instead of like make charting her own course, which is something I found really interesting about her partnership with Chansey 
is that it's pretty clear that Chansey was like kind of done. She was going to go back to being her own free agent. And then the moment that Nan is free, she's like, I'm back going back to the Nile. And it's like, girl, that's a mistake. You know, (laughs) it's like, did you not learn that? But I think that still makes for a really interesting character. And because she's still so young, there's a lot of mistakes to be had. I, I love Nan. I think she's such a cool character. I'm obsessed with her. Yeah, I love her kind of flip-flopping and she's she's most loyal to whoever is paying her the most and can save her. And ultimately, she's figuring out how to be most loyal to herself. And I am excited to see what that means for her. I actually do think that they probably could have played out the tension between her and Addie a little bit more. I don't think there was enough or like they they really only had like one big scene where it's like a standoff between the two of them and what it's like a blaster isn't loaded or or something like that and then they just leave like they just part ways um so I do think there could have been a little bit more with that and I will also say that it kind of bothered me how whenever we're in like Nan's internal dialogue she keeps referring to Affy as what Addie I think I kind of like, like that though she, I like that she didn't, you didn't like that I I liked it when she was physically talking to Affy, but when it was just kind of because it's not like it's actually first person from Nan's POV right but it's like every time we're kind of within Nan's perspective and she's not talking it's still like the narration is referring to Affy as Addie and I don't know I was like girl you know it's Addie or Affy you're just being annoying (laughs) I liked it I liked it I thought it was funny I I liked it the first couple of times and then I was kind of over it but generally I love Nan I think she's a really interesting character for all the reasons that you said um I'm a huge shipper of Reese and Nan I'm a hundred percent here for that relationship she even thinks about him in this book where she's like why am I thinking about Reese I shouldn't be thinking about Reese dot 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 um and to me that's a lot of subtext <laughs> same same I think Claudia would agree I, I think, think Claudia so would agree <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just think they have such an interesting dynamic, and the was in Out of the Shadows, Reese actually has like a similar kind of paragraph where he's like, "I wonder what Nan is up to," and then he's like, "Wait, stop it! You shouldn't be thinking about Nan; <laughs> she's evil." <laughs> um, the, and like the plot twist of Nan was just so good in Out of in Into the Dark. It just it worked really well, and yeah. I think that Nan and Reese have been like really prominent like secondary characters in a lot of other books since Into the Dark like they've popped up a lot in kind of different amounts in different books if that makes sense and I just think I want like a like a one bed trope with Reed and Nan or like a (laughs) handcuffed together trope like I know that they they like touched base (laughs) they like were reunited to a certain extent and out of the shadows but uh, I want more and I just think that's a really I think it's an interesting dynamic. I think Reese has a lot of questions about the Jedi and the Force and who he is. And I think Nan has a lot of questions about who she is, too. And I don't know. I like the idea of this, like, you know, the bad girl, the good boy, and, like, the <laughs> Jedi, the Nile getting together. We said this when they were first introduced. That's, like, that's a cool romantic relationship if they pursue it. Yeah. One thing I was just thinking about when you were speaking is something that has become a hallmark of Claudia Gray writing Star Wars is that surprise. I don't want to reveal anything if this is the only Claudia Gray book you've read, but in Into the Dark, obviously something that Caitlin referred to is that fact that Nan 
reveals herself as part of the Nile. And that was a surprising thing. And this happens in basically every single one of Claudia Gray's Star Wars books. I was just thinking about certain ones that happened in Master and Apprentice, Bloodline, like it happens a lot. And there was none of those sort of reveals in this book. And I wonder if that feels like a little bit of a missing piece too of Mm. that like Claudia Gray signature that we just haven't really defined until just now. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Yeah. It's like you're tracking something and you're waiting for it to have a payoff. And sometimes like the payoff of surprise and delight like wasn't necessarily there. Yeah. I think that maybe you could argue that Elzar killing Chansey is that moment, but at the same time, like everyone is basically on the chopping block at that point of <laughs> of the book, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, that like any everyone is going to die unless they do something about it. So Elzar killing Chansey was shocking and surprising. I'm not saying it wasn't, but the gravity of the surprise um, felt a little different than other Claudia Gray books, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, they were basically marketing this book with like, so who do you think is going to die? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and a, a lot of people, a lot of people died. Uh, you know, Lots of characters died. As you said, let's <laughs> get into the body count. Yeah, the body count. <laughs> All right, well, we've kind of reached the end of our characters that we really wanted to discuss in The Fallen Star. So if you have any, if you don't have anything else, Charlotte, are we ready to move into part three? Yes, absolutely. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. Okay, so welcome to part three. We're going to be giving each other quotes and having us, having the other person react to them. We do this thing that's sort of a riff off a spiritual practice called Lectio Divino, where you give each other quotes and then you react to them, give your first response, and the other person doesn't know which quote you're giving them. So Caitlin and I will give each other two quotes and then we'll react to them. So it often yields, if this is your first time listening, it often yields a, a laugh or a sad moment or just a brief discussion. So let's get into it, Caitlin. Which one do you want to start with? You can go first. Okay. So your first quote is on page 70. All right. Darkness will ever be a part of me, he reminded himself. It will ever be a part of every Jedi, of every living thing. To acknowledge the darkness is to know the darkness. To know the darkness is to begin to control it. You're not going to continue reading where Elzar talks about Avar's long blonde hair. Sure, I'll go for it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Elzar's mind, as it often did, flashed to Avar Chris. He imagined her as she had been on a long ago mission to Riosa. Her long golded hair back in a braid, the jeweled headband she wore sparkling in the pinkish sunlight. (laughs) Sorry, I just. It's not, at least it's not, it's not on the pillow. It's, it's just not sparkling in the, the sunlight. It's just sparkling in the sunlight. <laughs> okay. But the quote that was interesting is in italics. Okay, yeah. Galen, let's refer, yeah, <laughs> return back to that. Sorry. <laughs> I, um, I think this is a quote for people like you and I who love, and for so many Star Wars fans, right, um, who love this discussion of light and dark and really seeing active Jedi talk about knowing the dark side is about knowing darkness because I really think that they kind of they really don't refer to it as the dark side all too often in the higher public um like we haven't even gotten a mention of the Sith right maybe like maybe once as like a long ago there were the Sith or something like that but I actually don't think we have but of the darkness and that it's not it's not the dichotomy really of dark side and light side it's just darkness and I really like that uh, way that they talk about darkness in the higher public and 
really seeing Elzar go through this and understand that the darkness will ever be a part of me and that it's a part of every living thing. I think this is what we always kind of wanted the end result to be in The Rise of Skywalker of this communion of Rey and Kylo, of this light and dark existing concurrently and together within both within each other and like what they represented as a dyad. But that's like true for every single person. And Elzar is kind of working through that and realizing how to understand the darkness without succumbing to it. And this is where I bring in Jedi Dooku loss of our mantra that Je- they Dooku Jedi loss. It's never going to happen. I <laughs> she, literally she never gets it right. To happen. And we just all need, you will know what, you know what I'm talking about. You don't need to correct me anymore. <laughs> um, of, you know, walk into the light, embrace the dark. I can't, I need to refresh my memory on what it actually says, but it's time the- to get it tattooed on your body. <laughs> God, <laughs> it's extreme. The Star Wars celebration is coming up. They do do active tattoos there. <laughs> but in that, they they talk about that the very first Jedi had this mantra that they would do every single day of, you know, walk into the light, like to know oneself is to walk into the light and to embrace the darkness. It was something like that. Uh, acknowledge the dark. I think is what it actually says. And when that when that audio book first came out, that drama, we talked about how the Jedi lost that through the years. And that kind of ultimately was part of how we got to the Jedi that we understand and know in the second trilogy era. And I think we're seeing like another piece of that puzzle here in what Elzar is talking about. Like knowing the darkness isn't something that was taught to him as a Jedi. It's something that he's in a lot of ways having to relearn right now in his Jedi journey and what happened to him in the rising storm and how he fell completely into the darkness. But I don't think he described it as falling to the dark side. Like it's not this permanent thing, which I think is important. I would argue almost that if we could kind of zoom out from this quote, which I'm going to read again, because sometimes I feel like it's a little rough when we have this conversation about a quote and it was like 10 minutes ago. Um, So here's the quote. Darkness will ever be a part of me. It will ever be a part of every Jedi, of every living thing. To acknowledge the darkness is to know the darkness. To know the darkness is to begin to control it. So I would argue that while the storytelling might not be 100% there for every single character, I think this is the journey, this exact journey to acknowledge the darkness is to know the darkness, to know the darkness is to begin to control it is the journey that every single protagonist in the films is on and even Ahsoka in a sense as well. I think that this is something that I think continues to be explored and you're right that this is definitely to me a quote that you're like, like you just kind of like you read it when you're reading these kind of books and then you kind of just stare up at your ceiling. Dang, that was a good quote. Gonna have to put that one in my back pocket (laughs) when I talk about, you know, themes and things like that for our podcast. And I think that every single character, I think we wanted that to come, like you mentioned, into fruition fully with the dyad. But I think in a sense, it did with the yin and yang aspect of it all of like accepting Mm -hmm. that darkness within you, even though you're made of light. And I, again, I think this is why I find Elzar to be a really interesting character because he's actually someone who's voicing this struggle when a lot of our characters don't voice the struggle. Even Luke doesn't necessarily voice the struggle. And I think that in a lot of ways, Luke is held up as a Jedi who overcame so much and is rebuilding the Jedi Order and the time period that in which we have most recently consumed content 
in the book of Boba Fett. And so that's, it's interesting, right? Like, I feel like this is just a, a good quote that we had to discuss. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the great thing about Elzar. I remember in the rising storm is that he immediately told Stellan what happened. And we were like, oh my God, did, did he communicate something? <laughs> <laughs> whoa whoa <laughs> like yeah. that that was the plot twist <laughs> yeah well, we're so used to this miscommunication situation that happens with every single day no one talks to each other yeah. so frustrating throughout the entire skywalker series about how everything would have been solved if people just talked about their feelings maybe went to therapy i mean you know what anakin goes to therapy but like <laughs> With Yoda, but it's a little different because Yoda doesn't want to acknowledge that darkness within yeah. any anyone. So yeah. it all it all kind of compounds, I think. Well, they talk. I mean, they talk about their like Jedi therapists. Yeah. In, uh, in the higher public, I think Bell talks about mm -hmm. it because he's been. But what I think it's interesting is that I actually highlighted the next part of this page where he talks about darkness and Avar, which not to be like jokey about Avar, but I think is actually interesting for Elzar as a character. Where it goes on after he talks about. Avar's hair in the sunlight, he says, perhaps one reason he found it so difficult to accept his own darkness as a part of life, no more and no less, came from his inability to believe that any darkness had ever found its way into Avar's soul, which mm. I think is just, it, it was, for me, I highlighted that as um, thinking about Elzar's relationship to both Avar and Stellan, and also thinking I can't remember if it already happened, but like Avar and Stellan's super tense discussion about the Starlight Beacon. I'm like that, like Elzar has her on such a, a high pedestal, but she, she, the, the glimpses that we've seen of her have been moment, like it was like a moment of like high tension with Stellan, which would not like, wasn't, is not a, a perfect girl. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is why I really wonder if she's going to fall like in our conversation about who's going to yeah. fall for the from the dark side just because she's put up on you're right like such a high pedestal yeah. and it's like really <laughs> i guess yeah yeah exactly all right are you ready for your first quote yes your first quote is on page 258 okay so this is kind of the whole first little chunk of the page please repeat that for me elzar man said evenly the situation couldn't get worse obviously he had misheard but he hadn't there are three Rathtars loose on the station, Bell, Zedifar confirmed. The other Rathtar shipment turned out to be false, and I assume this one was too. There's no excuse for my error, and I... Skip it. Elzar took a deep breath. Every strength has a corresponding weakness. For us, our strength in the Force gives us confidence in our decisions. But then we grow too accustomed to leaning on it. Stalin had taught him that. I might have opened the cargo hold too. The first thing I think about with Elzar's comment about every strength has a corresponding weakness is The Last Jedi and Luke's telling of Rey of what balance is and her having feeling, her feeling balance, like life, death, life itself, all these things, right? And I think that it's an interesting, I don't know, it's, this is a good quote. Every strength has a corresponding weakness for us. Our strength in the force gives us confidence in our decisions. But when we grow to accustomed, but then we grow to accustomed to leaning on it. I would say also that if Stellan taught him that, I would say Stellan even has tripped over mistaking the force for the council. So if the council gives mm -hmm. him confidence in his decisions, then he grows to accustomed to leaning on it or like leaning on the rules, leaning on not trusting his own instincts. I find this quote kind of interesting because as much as I agree with Elzar here, I don't know if Stellan himself would agree with that. Maybe in the past he did, but not presently in the book. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's, 
again, I can't remember if it's entirely before or after this point. I think it's after where uh, Belle and Briaga finally separate and Belle has like concocts this new plan that he has to do on his own. And he realizes that he doesn't ask. He like doesn't radio to ask Elzar or Stellan or anyone else if this is the call he should make. He just feels absolute confidence in the decision that he's making and how to execute the plan. I think it was about getting the medical tower separated or something like that, yeah. mm -hmm. which here is where he's like relaying what has happened to Eldar, kind of like play by play about what's going on. I really liked your breakdown of it. I had annotated in this actually that I was laughing because it's like a really serious moment of like, all of this is happening. The Starlight Beacon is crashing and now there are Rathars on the loose and Elzar like takes a moment to make it about a lesson like, well, the Force teaches us this. And I'm like, yeah. Elzar, you don't have time for this, babe. Like, you the, gotta... The Rathars be rolling, you know? Are... We've seen The Force Awakens. We know how this goes. I know. My annotation was, can't Elzar can't not make this a lesson even in the midst of the Starlight Beacon crashing. <laughs> That is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think your your breakdown, your analysis of it was spot on. But I think at this juncture in the story, I, I thought it was kind of funny. I was like, Elzar, just we got it. He he cuts Belle off, but yet like kind of monologues for, you know, 10 seconds <laughs> about the force. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for your next one? Yes. It is page 244, so not far from what you just said. Because you're a great Jedi, one of the greatest of us all, Elzar said. Stellan, surely don't doubt that. Stellan shrugged. His gaze still looked far past Elzar, past this room. Greatness can mean a lot of different things. I've always believed it meant duty, honor, selflessness. But how can you be selfless if you've never defined yourself? Because I never have, Elzar. I lived as the Jedi exemplar poured myself into a mold shaped by others. Take away my ability to use the force, I find myself left as a man I hardly know. This is so sad. I picked a sad one, but I thought that I don't know. You go. You go. I'm not going to monologue. <laughs> you go. did pick a sad one. I think <laughs> this this again, like these were some of the better moments. I thought like moments like these of Stellan and Elzar talking to each other about the force and about who they are. I always think this is where the High Republic has excelled in general. And I think it's meaningful because Elzar has been allowed to basically go on this sabbatical after he found himself capable of falling into the darkness of, I think he described it like drowning because Elzar's relationship to the force is like the ocean. So I think he described it like drowning in, in darkness, I think, something like that. And he's like been allowed to go and take time on this sabbatical to like figure himself out basically. And then Stellan went through this equally harrowing experience and is just continually pushing himself to be the marshal of the Starlight Beacon to continue to be uh, a, in a lot of ways a liaison between the Jedi Council and the Republic and like Chancellor So and everything. And he got no rest, no break. And like they're they're basically in time of crisis, right? Like it's not like they all deserved a vacation or something. Like there's a lot going on with the Nile and, and everyone's kind of on edge. But Stellan, like he said, he's been pushing himself into this mold. He, he didn't tell anyone how much he was suffering and how much he was 
cracking under pressure in a lot of ways. Then at the end of this, it's like he doesn't really even know who he is and what it's all for. Like he can tell you what the textbook definition of what it all for is. But when it comes down to it, he doesn't know himself. And I love that quote of how can you be selfless when you don't know yourself? I think that's such like a like I want to put that on a poster with an eagle flying of it and like put it in a classroom. You know what I mean? Like that feels like like, oh, I, sh- I should probably journal about that. <laughs> you know, like how can you how can you be selfless when you don't know yourself? And then Elzar's like, that's the definition of a Jedi is to be selfless. And it's like, yeah, but I don't know who I am. How can I give up of myself? I don't know. I just I think it's a really good quote. And like what Stellan is ruminating here on is so important and ultimately what he was able to do at the end of the book was it was himself not the force he's using the force but it's like it's predominantly him because the leveler is still a component of what's going on and he's like in such a weakened state and it really is fully giving up of himself in the most selfless action at the end yeah it's curious i as I usually do, like to zoom out of these a little bit. And this is another one of those situations that we basically just talked about. I'm sorry I choose kind of similar quotes, but about how the Jedi in the prequels just really did not allow the Jedi to explore who they are in a lot of ways. I think that they were rushed into the Clone Wars and forced to become generals and like that became who they were and that became their entire personality and the selflessness was sort of lost in this fighting of this war. And I even think the Jedi would probably say that if forced during that time. And just having this sort of vocalization from Stellan about this concept is super interesting to me. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this is a sad conversation. Oops. <laughs> well. <laughs> All right. Do you want your next quote? Yes. Your next quote is on page 272. It is a shame that the office has become so chaotic so soon after its initial organization, said JJ5145, with the only sense of dismay the droid had expressed since the disaster began. At our current trajectory and rate of descent, it is unlikely that there will ever be an opportunity to reestablish order. In other words, Stalin said, you think we're all going to die. You will die, JJ5145 cheerfully specified. I will merely become inactive. (laughs) You always choose the funny ones. I always choose the serious ones. I feel like I have a good mixture. You usually lean towards sad. <laughs> yeah, it's those are the ones that I dog ear in my book. You know what I yeah. mean? And then then when I go back, I'm like, dang, that was a good one. You got to talk about that. Anyway, this one's hilarious. I also really like the concept of like a writer being like, okay, what's important to this droid? Organization is important to this droid. So how would the droid express himself with any sort of a, a sense of dismay, stress when the Starlight Beacon is going to crash and everyone's going to die? He would do it by... <laughs> explaining things through the sense of organization and disorganization and I love that it's so good it's very good it's just it's funny I (laughs) I had to include a quote from uh from our labeling droid I will say that the the first quote that I'd actually picked for our our section here was the one I read earlier in the episode about Belle and I like forgot that I had put it down here in our quote section so I couldn't you always do that I do always always do do that that. so I did have like a kind of sad one just to 
just to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Just to kind of add on to the funny one, because that one was a good one. But one thing that we didn't talk about that I wanted to mention was that on page 256, there is a part with the Raftars that is a Jurassic Park reference (laughs) with the, did you notice that with the flares and the fact that the Raftars are like T-Rexes and that you shine the flare and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. they go after it. And of course it's Leox who has the flare. Like it just makes <laughs> yeah, sense. That makes the He's sense. the Ian Malcolm of <laughs> the vessel crew. So yeah, it, that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, I knew exactly what was happening when the word <laughs> flare happened in, in Star Wars. I was like, yeah, that is a Jurassic Park reference. And Claudia, Thank you. Thank you. For that. <laughs> I will say, though, that this like passage between 272 and 273 actually just like brings home a lot of the quotes we were talking about, like their resolutions. Like mm-hmm. it goes on to talk about um, Stalin and the force saying Stalin took him the moment to center himself. The force still felt muffled, twisted far away. But the meditative trance with Elzar studying him had helped. If Stalin could not yet function as a Jedi should, he could at least function as a leader should. And this is him mm-hmm. preparing to sacrifice himself on the starlight beacon and then he gets one last kind of calm from bell you know asking um you know stalin stalin asked bell is everything okay where you are yes sir and i think i know how to make it better and he tells him the plan and then after they they talk stalin thinks bell's not asking for permission he's not second guessing himself that doubt that has gripped bell since Loden's initial disappearance has gone um and good riddance and that's I feel like that's kind of what we were talking about with Bell too. So anyway, I was th- and, and we have the labeler droids. So I feel like this, you know, hundred. It's a good words, summation of it all. It really, it kind of was. It kind of was. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and and those are my big three takeaways from the Fallen Star: are Bell, Stellan, and the labeler droid. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, and Geode as a tombstone. I just yeah. Oh, Geo just absolutely killing it just being everyone's favorite you gotta love him <laughs> i really do actually. there's no room for geode hate actually no <laughs> in my opinion no absolutely none <laughs> okay well i think that brings us to the end of our the fallen star discussion i can't believe we made it yeah this is a really fun discussion i'm glad we got to add in the fallen star to our high republic discussions we are planning on covering daniel jose older's book it'll come at some point it's it's gonna come yeah, yeah. don't worry <laughs> I'm not putting Wait. a ton of pressure on us for that one. And since since phase two doesn't start until basically the fall, like slash late winter, I feel like we have some time. So don't expect it anytime soon, but we yeah. will do it probably yeah. this summer. Yeah. I've heard really great things about it. I'm excited. I haven't read his comics, Daniel Jose Older's comics, but Last Shot was such a runaway favorite for me of his. So I'm excited to read Midnight Horizon. Me too. I really am. Uh, Everyone says it's great. So I'm hyped about that. Very excited. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you guys so much for being patient and waiting for our discussion of The Fallen Star and for listening to all of our coverage of The High Republic. Um, Let us know what your favorite books have been. We would love to know. You can find us online on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website skytalkers.com our instagram tiktok facebook you can find us across all of those social media platforms and if you haven't left us a review yet on itunes or spotify we would really love it if you took a couple seconds to go and do that it helps other people find our show and if you are interested in other ways to support us you can head on over to our patreon and check out our different reward tiers there and how to get involved in our discord community 
I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Anna, Madison, Hayden, Trevor, Colin, Allie, Sophia, BB, Nate, Andrew, Mason and Sophia, Aubrey, Emily, Angela, Amanda, Ian, Kelly, Niall, and Ryan. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.